Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and today we're discussing an idea every student is sure to encounter early and repeatedly during the college years, the idea of relativism. To discuss this with me is Greg Kokel, co-author of Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Well, Stan, it's a real treat to be with you, and... uh... I'm trying to think. It's been like 15 years or so since we actually sat down together, and uh, and 25 or 30 since we had classes together at Talbot, and uh, we have both put on a few years. <laughs> Way too long, my friend. Way too long. It's good to see you again. <laughs> Thank you. You've thought a lot about this topic of relativism in so many of its forms, so uh, let's jump right in. How did sure. you get interested in this in the first place? Well, you made a comment just a moment ago about how students are are sure to run into this. I mean, I, I was thinking that's really an understatement because <laughs> when Frank Beckwith and I wrote uh, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair more than 25 years ago, uh, relativism was a real issue. We were particularly focusing in on moral relativism, mm-hmm. the idea that there's no objective moral truth. It's just a matter of individual opinion. Right. And we were we talked about the multitude of flaws in that view and how it just is not true okay it's not an it's not a proper take on uh on morality and we argued that here and by the way moral relativism you know it's been around for you know millennia and uh, yeah, sure. but it really really took hold i think in the 60s i know because i was there <laughs> you know and it was like do your own thing and if it feels good do it and uh, right. different strokes for different folks you know sure. and these these were all these were not metaphysical statements back then. They they were just statements of a personal refusal to um, live like everybody else, you know. But now um, the whole notion has taken on a, a metaphysical dimension with the uh, the rise of postmodernism in popular culture uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And, uh, of course, philosophically that started way before then. And now it has just seeped into the culture so much that it defines everything that a college student is going to face. Um, it's what Carl Truman wrote about, you know, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Mm-hmm. He called it expressive individualism. Uh, I think it's simply captured in the popular um, slogan, you do you. Okay. Right. <laughs> two, two pronouns and a verb. That's it. I mean, it's all about the self. It is a radical metaphysical narcissism. And when I say metaphysical, I mean that this is the way they understand reality to be structured. Mm-hmm. It's not just, don't tell me what to do. I get to do what I want. It's much worse than that. I've written a new book. It's, it's just out called Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. And I have a uh, chapter in there called The Primal Heresy. Because I want the reader to understand that what is aggressively informing people's thinking on campus now and throughout the culture, it goes way back to the beginning. The distinction that we see in the beginning, and there are different ways to characterize this, but very simply put, you have Adam and Eve living in a world um, that is good, and they are, they are beholden to the God they're in relationship with, who has constructed the world a certain way for the purpose of human flourishing and has given moral directives that they follow for the same purpose, okay? Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening, instead of 
um, opting for the truth of the outside world, the world God made and uh, the the commands that God gave. They opted for the truth on the inside. Eve is thinking, this appears to be good for me to eat. It looks tasty. I'm paraphrasing, of course, Mm -hmm. Uh, Genesis 3. It will make me wise. It will give me what I want for myself. Now, she's under inducement by the the, uh, temptation, obviously, of the devil. But nevertheless, notice the kind of language there. It's all internal. Mm -hmm. What's going on inside? What I want? Me, 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 me. Okay? And so what she did... And so did Adam, is they opted to follow the truth on the inside rather than the, the nature of the external world and the moral, the moral commands that God provided for the functioning of that world with human beings, okay? Now, this distinction here, I've gone for years and years and years, since 25 years ago or so with Frank on that book to now the latest book, Street Smarts, struggling with the best way to communicate what relativism is, because I think it's a hard thing for people to grasp, especially mm-hmm. when they're immersed in it. Oh, yeah. It's like helping a fish figure out what water is, right? Exactly. Exactly right. And so uh, what, what I've most recently come up with, I think, is one of the clearest characterizations, what I call the inside-outside distinction. Mm. Uh, Let me back up. Relativism is a take on what the word truth actually means. Okay. There's a classic understanding of what that means. And, uh, and there's, and actually a common sense understanding the way we normally talk about it. What we mean is truth is a fact. It's the way the world is. You know, it's very simple to understand that the way you got Aristotle's a characterization and blah, blah, blah. But very simply, a truth is a fact. But relativism says that it's not a fact that is something that is the case about outside of us. Truth now, sometimes characterized as my truth, is a belief or a feeling that we have about something on the inside. So instead of it being kind of world-dependent, it is mind-dependent. It's not out there. It's inside. And, of course, that's the way relativism applied to morality has always been. That may be true for you, but it's not for me. People say regarding abortion or sexual behavior or whatever. There's a whole host of ethical issues Mm -hmm. that apply. And people are just dismissive of things that, and I actually think this is what's going on, of things that are too restrictive to individual freedom, things they don't like. So then they just say, that's your truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, My truth is different. Okay, notice the distinction there. The truth, quote unquote, is something that abides inside a subject, a person, or maybe a, a, a community. It is not something that is the case about the world outside, okay? Now, we're just talking about moral truth at this point. Um, so it's, it's an individual feeling or an individual belief that makes a statement true in relativism. Therefore, it, it's interesting. A person could never be mistaken about the truth of something in this regard. As mm-hmm. long as they believe it, it's true for right. them. At that moment. Now, in five minutes, it might not be true when they change their mind. J. Warner Wallace put it this way. He's the author of Cold Case Christianity. He said, if the truth that is in your mind or the truth that you believe can change just by changing your mind, then it's just in your mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, By contrast, take gravity. If you don't believe in gravity, Stan, you're not going to float away. 
okay, because it is not mind-dependent, that is, the subject or individual's mind. It is dependent on the nature or the structure of the world outside, okay? Um, And so that is an objective fact where many people take morality to be subjective facts for them. Mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sub, oh, beliefs or feelings. Okay. That's a general sketch, right? right? Now the concept of relativism, or also known as subjectivism for obvious reasons, what's in the individual subject, now that is applied to everything. That is applied to everything with varying degrees of consistency. Obviously, nobody can live this way, but this is the way people talk about reality, especially when it's self-serving. Okay, so now to the real answer to your question here, that's the predicate. And the answer is, Christians bring a claim to others about the real world, about the world out there. We are not just saying, try Jesus to see if you like him. He might be your flavor. You never know. Although many Christians characterize it as that, that is not the message that we have been entrusted with. Mm-hmm. That is not the, the foundation of the Great Commission, right? Rather, we are meant to, to bring a factual case to the world because it matters for every individual in the world forever. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to make that case. Obviously, and that's what apologetics does, and you and I have been involved in that for many years. But make no mistake about the kind of claim that we're making. And this is what's at stake here, not just for the non-Christian world, but for the Christian world that is very confused about these matters, though they shouldn't be. They're confused because they are inundated by a culture that wants to relativize everything about their convictions, which is why, Stan, I'm not comfortable with Christians talking about their faith that is using that word. Well, as, as a Christian, this is what I believe, okay? Or this is my faith. Whenever you say the word faith or belief, people are adding words like leap of, <laughs> you know, or blind, mm-hmm. something like that, or your club, your community. This is your linguistic community if they're real sophisticated with postmodern terminology. But you don't have to be sophisticated to fall into this trap. This is the way people think. And so what I talk to people about is not my faith, but my convictions, my understanding about the way the world actually is. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not just a believer in Jesus. You know, I don't want people to mistake my claim to be a claim about my community or my subjective point of view. Mm-hmm. I want them to understand my claim to just as Jesus did, as an external claim about the external world. And again, like I said, that has to be defended. But first, we have to be very clear on the kind of claim we're making. And these ideas here that I've offered are collectively the answer to your question. I learned very early on that it's important to not only make these distinctions, but then contend for the truth capital T, unfortunately, we have to do that now. It goes back to Francis Schaeffer in the 80s, you know, who was a great influence on me. Now we got to contend for this capital T truth, truth about the way the world actually is. And that, our claim is, is consistent with the true story of reality that we find in collectively in 66 books that we call the Bible. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's really a helpful overview. A lot to unpack there. Uh, Let me press into a few things. Uh, One, I I do want to mention one of, if not the best, expositions in literature of the internal musings of Eve as she was tempted is in C.S. Lewis's second book in the Space Trilogy, Paralandra. Right, right. And uh, it really helped me get a sense, as literature can, in a way that sometimes more uh, analytic philosophy, which is my field, does, and really helped me get a sense of, yeah, here's, here's, here's that turn to the inner reality as defining what is right to do as opposed to what God has said. It's an amazing uh, account. Uh, of course, Lewis's Eve doesn't falter and fail. She's successful, which is interesting. So, But really highlights the tension and the an way excellent. that when one turns to the internal, I'm defining reality, how easy it is to then justify certain decisions that mm-hmm. uh, that are, in fact, contrary to the way things are. So, Which leads to the other distinction you're making implicitly, uh, and I'd like you to say maybe more about that and draw other distinctions out. Relativism is really a broad term that has at least several variants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started talking about moral relativism, relativism in relationship to moral choices, what one would take to be a right or wrong action. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you're claiming, and I think the history of the last 50 years or so has borne out, uh, it's now a much broader relativism that's uh, relativism in relationship to what's actually real mm-hmm. in everything, not just in moral decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has then broader implications as you're starting to right. unpack uh, in other areas. Are there other types of relativism as well or that, that would follow from that or or help us get a taxonomy? You know, that, and you could probably actually do a better job at a, a full taxonomy, but you mentioned, mentioned ontological relativism and that I guess a way to characterize that is that the fact of the matter is there is no world out there to know accurately. There are only perceivers. And, uh, of course, what's ironic about that is that itself is a statement about the way reality is actually structured. So out it's, there, right? Turn, yeah, it's, it turns out to be self-refuting, which is one of the problems with this entire approach. It's like uh, the postmodern crowd who want to reduce language and reading and everything to a subjective experience. They don't want everybody reading their book to read their book <laughs> that way. They they believe in authorial intent. But I, I think probably a, a more popular way of understanding is maybe epistemic relativism. Yeah, there there's a world out there, I guess, but we can't really know that for a variety of reasons. And one might be, and there's different ways that philosophers kind of cash this out. One might be because we can't trust our sense perceptions, or we can't trust our reasoning capability, or reality is constructed for us by our linguistic communities. There are different ways to cash this out. But it comes down to a kind of agnosticism about knowledge in general, okay? Now, I, I think there's something there. Obviously, there are problems we have to solve. But the reason that there are problems to have to solve is, I think, this would be a very, in a sense, maybe simplistic take on it. But we live in a world that requires us to get a lot of things accurate in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And we happen to do that. 
we do survive, therefore we must be getting lots of things accurately. But how is it that we get an accurate take of the external world into our minds in an accurate fashion? So there's a, there is a question about the epistemic or knowledge process there that's legitimate. But when that question turns into a kind of absolute of its own, if we can't figure this thing out, how it actually works, then it doesn't happen. <laughs> This mm-hmm. is like, like you know, about the mind-body problem. This is a, a, a separate issue, but there's a parallel here. Um, does the soul really exist, or is it just meat all the way down, so to speak? And is there an immaterial self? And the question is, well, how can an immaterial self move a material thing? I don't know how, but look, watch this. I'm drinking my coffee. I'm, it's happening right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So just because we don't know the mechanism clearly doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. To make that point in another area, we do that in science all the time. In science, we discover that something is the case. And it might be years, decades, and and maybe never that we actually discover how that happens. That's a research program. But it doesn't mean we don't know that it happened, just that we can't explain how it happened yet. Excellent illustration. Gravity's been... around forever, right? And uh, it took a while to figure out how that works. There's still mysteries about it, but still, there's no question about the fact of. That's that's a great point. But I think this agnosticism, or I I should say this uncertainty regarding particulars of reality, that knowing of it has been a, um, a convenient excuse for dismissing facts of reality that strike me as fairly self-evident and that are consistent with the the true story of reality, the Christian story. I keep using that phrase because I wrote a book called The Story of Reality and that's talking about the foundation. So I'm just as like my, as an author, I'm doing some marketing. But um, <laughs> it's consistent with that. The, we, there are facts that were, were, they're so obvious, but many of them are facts that people don't like. And you're familiar with the well-known atheists who have just said, hey, I do not want God to exist. I don't want him to exist. I don't want him looking over my shoulder, messing with my sex life or anything else, you know. And so there is a uh, there is this the personal motivation, which we understand in terms of the big story as the brokenness of the world brought and man, humankind brought about by that first violation that we were talking about. OK, so our story has explanatory power about what's going on here. But nevertheless, that's what we're faced with as Christians. And when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, I think most people are actually common sense realists when it comes to features of reality, including morality. Define realist. What do you mean by that? Realist means that uh, we we see the world as it actually is, okay? That uh, so a moral a moral realist is someone who holds that moral claims or moral rules are factual, actual features of the world outside. They're not mind-dependent. And I think that's the way most people function, because it what it's what keeps them alive. And mm-hmm. I, ironically, you know, people who are moral relativists they want well, they want that for themselves. Don't tell me how to live, but they're pretty happy to tell other people how, how to live. They don't want others to be moral relativists towards them. Okay, and the minute somebody else's morality starts encroaching on their own liberties, all of a sudden they are implicit moral objectivists. You shouldn't be pushing your morality on me. Wait, 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 why not? Because morals are relative. Wait, if morals are relative, like you say, then there is no should or shouldn't. Give us an example. 
Somebody says to me, and this is a tactical maneuver because I'm using a question, okay? Um, somebody says, you shouldn't be pushing your morality on me. Let's just say they're a relativist. And, of course, that's, that's the, um, the kind of phrase that is a giveaway of moral relativism. You shouldn't be pushing your morality on me. So I ask a question. Why not? Okay, now what are they going to say? It's wrong? Oh, okay, it is wrong. Is, is that your moral view? Yes, of course. Then why are you pushing it on me? Mm-hmm. You see, in one breath, they're trying to be a relativist as they're defending their own turf, Stan. But in the next mm-hmm. breath, the way they're defending their turf is by projecting an objective moral claim onto somebody else. So they mm-hmm. they got their foot in both worlds. And what's it going to be if you want to be intellectually honest? Okay. Now, there are some more consistent moral relativists out there, you know. But the thing is, if you are a consistent moral relativist, you cannot make any moral soundry recommendation about anything. Mm-hmm. Once you weigh in and you claim in some sense, even implicitly, that somebody else's actions are wrong, you're borrowing capital from a worldview that you say is false. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is an indicator that the Christian understanding of reality, at least as it touches on, on morality, is, is sound because people actually know it. In this other book I wrote, Tactics, I have a chapter called Inside Out. And the tactic there is just an understanding that, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, human beings actually are made the image of God, and they have to live in God's world. And so there are things that are built into their understanding of the world that God made that they cannot consistently deny. What is on the inside is going to come out on the outside. All you have to do is listen for it. And I just gave you an example. Mm-hmm. Morals are relative, therefore you shouldn't push your morality on me. Right. He said, there are no moral rules. Here's one. That's what they're saying in the same sentence mm-hmm. right there. And if we if we are uh, alert for those kinds of things, then we can use a question to expose that flaw and ask them, okay, tell me which world is the, the world we actually live in, the world of relativism or the world of objectivism, because you have you you've just traded on both sides. So I'm confused. Help mm-hmm. help me to or the person who says there is no truth. Okay, think about that. And this is a common statement now. Um, of course, people might mean different things, but if you take it kind of in a thoroughgoing way, there is no truth. Okay, my response is, I'm not sure what you want me to, how you want me to respond to your statement, because I think you want me to agree with you. I think you want me to say, yeah, that's an accurate thing. Okay, but the minute I try to agree with you, I'm implicitly sure. saying that your statement is so, sure. that it's true, which is the one thing your statement won't allow me to make. Right. So please help me to understand it. So notice that the questions that are meant to reveal the flaw and toss the ball back in their court and let them make sense of it. Mm -hmm. I could have kind of thumped them on the chest with my finger and said, hey, that's self-refuting, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But that's just preaching at them. Right. So yeah, similar to the good points that Randy Newman brings up in his book, Questioning Evangelism, yes, right. right? Exactly. That sometimes you've got to ask the question as opposed to just make the statement. That's right. To even open or continue the conversation. Yeah. I call it the 
Columbo tactic, if you recall, the uh, infamous yeah, yeah. Lieutenant Columbo of TV fame, <laughs> you know, uh, very yeah. shrewd, but very comes in under the radar, you know, scratching yeah. his head. I don't know. There's something about this thing that bothers me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. uh, and I think this is a good posture for the Christian to come in in a friendly conversation. It's, it's really part of the tactical approach that I, I develop in the book tactics and also in street smarts. It's like in a conversational way, tossing questions back and forth uh, to, to help clarify another person's view and his reasons for it. And that's all that I role played just a moment ago. Wait a minute. Help me to understand. I, I see this right. conflict. Fix this for me. You know, all we're doing is clarification there. But I have an insight. I have an insight that his view is self-refuting. But instead of just pointing at him and telling him that's self-refuting, I use a question to toss the ball in his court. Now he's standing there. What is he going to do? And I'm looking for an aha moment at some level. I am not looking to change that person's mind in that moment. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, The Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to College Faith. This has to do with my my whole approach to evangelism, and, and that is a gardening approach, not a harvesting approach. Okay, let me just say that again. Say more, yeah. Yeah, a gardening approach not a harvesting approach. Most of our evangelism techniques are harvest-oriented. I would think Mm. of even tracts that uh, explain the gospel, which I've used, by the way, to effect. Um, But they explain the simple gospel, as it were, and then give people an opportunity to receive Christ. And so, uh, all right, what is that? That's a closing move. That's a harvesting move, okay? But people don't change their minds very quickly, and uh, especially in the culture we're in now. And before there can be any harvest, there always has to be, in any individual's life, a season of gardening. And so what I've tried to do in my own works and the tactical material is give people gardening tools so they can do spade work. And I tell people, quite frankly, when I'm teaching these things in front of audiences, even even when I'm speaking at universities, I've spoken in 90 or over 90. I tell them, look, I'm not here to, I'm not here to convert you. Here's what I say. I, I just want to put a stone in your shoe. You know, I just want to annoy you in a good way. Mm-hmm. I want to get you thinking. Yeah. Let's gardening. If I do a little bit of spade work and maybe help them to see that their point of view is self-refuting, now they can chew on that. I can go away. They've got that. God can work on them, whatever. And maybe some other Christian will take the next step. Maybe like the Ecclesiastes idea of there is a time to sow and there's a time to reap, yeah. or Paul talking about some sow and some reap, yeah. and they're both important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, but Paul talks about in first, first or Second Corinthians, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 4, 
where he, after the woman at the well, and he tells the disciples, you're about to reap where you did not sow. Okay, somebody else did the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me in the New Testament is almost everything you see is gardening. And the harvest oftentimes takes care of itself. When I became a Christian almost 50 years, well, September 28, 1973, so 50 years, okay, um, my brother who had been doing the gardening in my life came to my apartment in West LA. I was at UCLA at the time. And he said, he started telling me about Jesus. I told him, I said, Mark, you don't need to tell me anymore about Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I harvested myself. Hmm. And you know, your own, even your audience can just reflect in their own life. Did they become a Christian in response to a direct challenge to receive Christ or something else in their life? I got a former atheist on my staff, one of our speakers, John Noyes, who doesn't even know when he became a Christian. He doesn't know when he crossed that line. God does. He doesn't. C.S. Lewis, same experience, right? He got on the motorcycle on the way to the zoo. He didn't believe. He found out when he got there, he did believe. Yeah, he leaves for the zoo with Warney in the sidecar of that motorcycle as a non-Christian. And when he got back, he's a Christian. So I only mention that um, not to diss any evangelism technique, but to let people feel comfortable with just with thinking about gardening yeah. and not swinging for the fences in any conversation. And this is what the tactical approach allows them to do with these questions, just to annoy people in a good way, to get them thinking, mm. especially about this issue of relativism, which is so destructive to community, to culture, to individual lives. Mm-hmm. It also has so many implications for our current conversation about toleration. Right. And I wonder if you might comment on how it applies to that sure. conversation or those challenges Christians often hear also. Yeah. Well, this word tolerance has undergone uh, a redefinition over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. It used to refer to how uh, how you treat people with whom you disagree So in order to tolerate in the classical sense, you have to think that the person who you're tolerating is actually mistaken in some sense, all right? The way um, Peter Kraft put it is the classical tolerance is, is be egalitarian toward people, treat people with equal respect, but be elitist regarding ideas. Think that ideas are better. Okay, now that's gone topsy-turvy. Now you have to be egalitarian regarding ideas. Everybody's point of view is equally valid. Everybody's religion, everybody's sexual conviction, all fine, okay, for them. No judgments allowed. But if you do judge, we're going to come after you. We're going to cancel you. We're going to fine you. You're going to lose your job. If you misgender somebody, I think in Canada, you can end up in jail. You know, okay, so that's tolerance that's topsy turvy. So that's the first observation about it. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. It's a connotation word. In other words, it has a feeling about it. Oh, tolerance is good, but the definition is reversed. So Mm -hmm. now it means the opposite of what it used to mean that made it a virtue, but it still feels like a virtue. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. should be tolerant. Okay. Here's the other observation I want to make about tolerance it's a moral good. Mm-hmm. It's a moral obligation, objectively, the way it's being used in culture, that is upon all of us to be tolerant in the way they have redefined it. So wait a minute. If moral relativism is true, that there is no objective morality, and which is the way you seem to be living your life most, <laughs> most of the time regarding most moral claims, mm-hmm. uh, then how is it you're imposing an objective principle on me or anybody else that, on your view, doesn't even exist. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a, a, a self-refutation um, built in. But it's also an example, I think, what I talked about a moment ago, Stan, that there's something on the inside, a moral realism that God has built into people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul talks about them in Romans 1 and 2, especially, that is coming out. The, the thing that you judge people by, Paul says, you don't even follow it yourself. You know, there's something built in that you're judging by, and you're just as guilty. So this is coming out in these conversations. They can run from God, but they can't run from themselves. So they, this is an example where where that internal moral machine, so to speak, uh, Francis Schaeffer called it moral motions. C.S. Lewis gave substance to it. Uh, Schaeffer's point was that we have this, this ability or this uh, practice of making moral judgments that's natural and we think they're valid. And then Lewis talks about the substance of those uh, universal right. values in what he called the Tao. Unfortunate mm-hmm. word, I thought, but because it's yeah. confusing with other religions. But nevertheless, I think this is a feature of reality that as followers of Christ, we can be confident of and also pay attention to other people's conversation and then start asking questions about. So if I'm supposed to be tolerant, does that mean that that's an objective moral principle that stands above everybody? And if it is, where did it come from? Now, this is another right. avenue because now we start making an argument for the existence of God, the foundation of morality, from the existence of moral obligations that are objective in the world, Mm -hmm. which the person just made implicit reference to. So these things are all linked. There's an entailment here. Sure. They're tied together. And again, it fits perfectly in the Christian story because there's a coherence there in our story about these things and a correspondence with the way we experience reality which Mm -hmm. is just the standard way of saying that our views are true at that point. Right. Well, let's tie this directly to the student's experience. Not that what we've already been talking about isn't, but let's let's ground this in the kind of conversations or engagements they're going to have tomorrow, next week on campus. Yeah. Conversations with friends, conversations in classes, Mm -hmm. and they're papers and maybe group projects. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about how students can best respond in those various contexts when they face relativism. Yeah. Um, you mentioned two different categories, one conversation, the other one writing, and those yeah. are two different real motifs in my view. Mm-hmm. In both, you can make assertions. In, in fact, in writing, that's what you're doing. You're making a case. But in conversations, I encourage people not to make assertions, but rather to make headway with questions. And this is where the Colombo tactic comes in. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that will provide the Christian witnesser with a tremendous amount of safety, okay? In the Street Smarts, there's a chapter there titled, Questions Keep You Safe. And um, the burden of proof is always upon the person who makes the claim. So if somebody, some Christian is saying, well, this is the case, well, then somebody else can push back. They can, uh, they can gainsay. They can just say, no, it isn't. And now you've got an argument. Or they can say, really? Why? Now the Christian has to defend it. Okay, the Christian's always on the defensive or under the gun at that point. But if the Christian is the one simply asking questions, okay, they're not making claims, then there's no pressure on them. They're not trying to prove anything. They're just trying to figure out what's going on with the other people. And this is absolutely essential because it keeps the believer who might be nervous anyway about getting in over their head, so to speak, it keeps the believer in the shallow end of the pool. 
okay? Yeah. And so um, I've given some examples there about, like, people say there is no truth, okay? And I said, well, wait, I'm confused. Help me understand what, what you want me to respond to that. Do you, do you want me to believe you, that you want me to think you're correct? You want me to think your statement is true? I, I can't do that. So I'm confused. Now that tosses the ball back into their court. And at the heart of that little dialogue I modeled is a core principle that is the first step of the game plan that I advocate. And that is you're gathering information specifically to clarify another person's view. And the model question there is, what do you mean by that? Okay, no, that's just a model question. I've role-played in a couple different ways there. When you say, uh, I shouldn't push my morality on you, I'm, I'm confused. What do you mean? I, you're a relativist, right? So help me out. So that question, all by itself, especially if the Christian is alert to a problem, you don't point the problem out. You use a question to ask the other person to clarify their point. I'm just going to tell you, this is just the first step of a three-step game plan here, Stan, but that first step is going to save the bacon of so many Christians on campus if they follow it, if they follow it. We don't have time for me to tell you the stories of the times when just using that opening question, help me understand your view, I'm confused about this or that, Mm -hmm. has really made tremendous progress. People come into conversations with their sails filled with their ideas and their egos and whatever, you know. By the way, that's true of Christians as well. But I've noticed that when you ask a question for clarification, okay, um, what do you mean by that? And remember, that's a model question. Tell me more. Help me understand your view. Ball goes back in the other person's court. Lots of times, the wind goes right out of their sails. They don't know where to take it because they haven't thought about the view that they've pushed and promoted in that point. They've been socialized to say these things, it stonewalls Christians, and they don't have to do any more work. But if a Christian says, okay, help me understand that, I'm confused about that, it's amazing what happens. I call it a Simon and Garfunkel moment. Now, this is 60s alert, right? In 1966, these two guys, who are still alive, but they are very old, uh, wrote a song called The Sounds of Silence. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what you get oftentimes when you ask for clarification. The first step is to gather information and especially clarification on somebody else's view. Hey, let's just say a person says, well, everything's relative. Oh, okay. I'm confused. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Then let them explain what they mean by relative. Now, I know what that means. I don't know what they mean. Okay. And so I want them to tell me. Then if they say, or they, once they tell me, I've got another question. You, you said everything's relative. What do you mean by everything? Well, what, everything, that's everything. What's so hard about that? Well, wait a minute. If everything in your statement means everything, isn't everything's relative, that statement, part of everything? Which would make your statement what? Also relative. Okay, notice there, I saw another problem. And the problem was that the statement itself was self-refuting. I call that the suicide tactic. So I'm asking a question now to expose that particular flaw. But notice in both cases, I'm relaxed. I'm not under the gun. I'm responding to somebody else's claim by asking for clarification, seeing if I can get it, and then exposing a weakness or a flaw, in this case that it's self-refuting, with another question. There's one example. Uh, You ought to whatever, really, who says who? Mm-hmm. Your grandmother? 
you know, this is what they say to us, right? So why, why do I have to follow your rules? Why do I have to? Let them answer that question. Sometimes we offer it as a rhetorical question. Why do I have to do what you say? You're nobody. I don't have to listen to you. And we keep carrying on like that. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying you ask the question and wait for an answer. You shouldn't do that, they say to you. Why not? It's wrong. Says who? I'm waiting for an answer now. It's not a rhetorical question. I'm waiting for an answer. I want them to justify, make sense of, their use of an objective moral standard against me in that moment. Notice I'm, I'm not dealing even with whatever larger issue is in question, some kind of sexuality or gender concern or whatever. I'm dealing with the moral claim that they're putting on me. I could ask, do you think people ought to be authentic? Do you think people ought to be true to themselves? Yes, of course. All right. Sure. Uh, what do you call a, a Christian who says one thing about what he believes and acts a different way? What do you call that? There's a word that we use. What is that? Hypocrite. Exactly. So do you think that I should be authentic to my own convictions or should I be a hypocrite? Back to you. And I have conversations like that in the Street Smarts book on a whole bunch of issues to help people ramp mm. up into these things. But th- these conversations are messy because life is messy. Don't expect that you're going to get the person challenging you to turn on a dime with what you say. It is our obligation as Christians to give an answer for the hope within us. Now, sometimes we don't get to the hope because there's other answers we've got to give first before some people are willing to consider the hope. But this is part of the challenge. I don't want to think about your Jesus or your God or anything. He's a bad God if he doesn't let me do whatever I want. Okay, so uh, I could also explore the concept of human flourishing if the person was willing to have a a more in-depth conversation about this. Because if you notice, the concept of human flourishing is teleological. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a way flourishing looks in particular. So I've got a Ford F-150, a 14 out in my driveway right now. I want my F-150 to flourish. Well, how does that happen? Well, read the manual. Change the oil, keep the fluids going, blah, 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 blah. You know, keep it tuned up. Okay, so because there is a proper functioning of the F-150, there is a way to keep it like that. Human flourishing presupposes the idea that there is a proper way that humans are to function. Trying to find the common ground, in this case, human flourishing, sometimes is, a, is, is the place to start because yes. there is common ground. We're all interested in, in human flourishing. It's just a debate of what actually leads to that. Yes, that's right. And so if we can at least agree on that, then we can start to have more of a fruitful conversation sometimes about these things. At least that's what people say. They believe in human flourishing. I mean, what a lot of times it amounts to is they believe in self-flourishing at the expense mm. of, of, of others. Uh, but mm. never, nevertheless, your point is really a good one, and it shows up in the dialogues that I offer on these different topics, these sample dialogues with sample questions that launch the dialogue, that I try to agree with the person I disagree with <laughs> on every point I can possibly agree with. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm with you. We're in the same boat here. But now I am curious about where that idea that it's wrong comes from. And that's the grounding question. I'm not asking how you know it. For example, I I got a speed limit sign out 25 miles an hour in front of my house. So that's how I know what the law is. But that isn't what makes the law. If I put a 15-mile sign out there, 
that wouldn't be incumbent upon people to obey because I'm not an appropriate authority, okay? Mm -hmm. The sign helps us to know what the law is. It doesn't tell us where the law comes from. Of course, we know about traffic signs. It comes from the government who has the authority to impose that limitation on us. Mm -hmm. So if we have moral laws that govern the universe, we can know them because some might say, well, that's just common sense. Yeah, that's maybe how we know it. That's the epistemic kind of element. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't tell us kind of the the ontological, metaphysical uh, answer to that question that where did it come from that right. gives that law its incumbency to begin with. And that that's that's the grounding problem. And this is where I think our argument for God is very powerful. Uh, classically, the moral argument for God. And incidentally, one of the things I do on Street Smarts is I leverage the problem of evil against the atheist. Mm -hmm. I think the problem of evil, I love the problem of evil in the sense that... Right. Why is it a problem? It, why? Yes. That in, there's got to be objective morality for there to be a mm -hmm. problem of evil, an right. objective problem of evil. And that requires a source uh, of of moral obligations that uh, that is violated mm -hmm. in order for there to be evil in the world. So this mm -hmm. takes you right to God, and I, I deal with some objections to that in the book. But these are the kinds of questions I'm going to ask, and I did earlier. So where are you getting your standard from? Mm -hmm. You know, when Richard Dawkins rails against the God of the Bible in the God delusion about how he's homophobic and uh, genocidal and misogynistic and a bully and all these other things. He's making all these moral charges. So mm -hmm. so my question is, okay, um, uh, Professor, where are you getting the moral standard? I'm not asking how you know it. I'm asking where are you getting the moral standard that you're judging God by? This is a question that could be asked in the classroom. It's the grounding question. And so why not? If the guy's an atheist, there is no moral standard to get, not on that worldview. And what this points out is that the problem of evil is not just a problem for the theist. Right. It's a human problem. Every worldview has to deal with that. And That's so right. my way of exposing that, if I were in a conversation, even with a professor, I'm, I'm a polite student, I raise my hand, I'm just confused. Okay, professor, you don't believe, as I understand it, that God exists because of the problem of evil. So it's a clarification question. Yes, that's right. Okay. So let's just say you're right. There is no God. Do those things that happen that you just described still happen in the world? Of course. Are they still evil? Of course. That's my complaint. Okay. Now, will you help me understand what makes them evil in a materialistic universe that you believe in? How do you solve the problem of evil as an atheist? How do you ground that claim that they're really evil? How you ground it, make sense of it, however you want to characterize it. And there's crickets. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get anything. And by the way, evolution is not going to help. That is a standard go-to for the atheist with regards to morality. Evolutionary philosopher Michael Ruse, who I know you're familiar with, makes it very clear. He said, what evolution does is produce the illusion of morality. It gives us a false belief that things are objectively wrong. That's it. So the morality that evolution can give is only a, a moral belief inside a subject, which means it's relativistic. Mm -hmm. And relativism cannot ground the objective problem of evil. Right. And there is a problem of evil. Everybody knows it. doesn't matter where you lived or when you live. So these are some ways that in classroom or with people, in conversation, you can make these points. It's different when you're writing a, a paper because you can't ask the questions that properly corner a person who believes what amounts to be a foolish idea. 
And that's what the questions are. They're not, it's not gotcha. This isn't a gladiator moment. Right, sure. It's trying to get to the point in a, in a shrewd way, just like Jesus did with his questions, to get people thinking. If you're writing a paper, that's more challenging. You've got to know the issues, you've got to have a good argument, and uh, you have to express it well. Very good. I want to circle back on one thing for some clarity. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that asking questions is a great way to be in the shallow end, and you don't then need to, uh, at that point, defend the truth claims you're making. You're just questioning the truth claims the other person's making, which is is great. Uh, It seems though at some point, we need to be prepared to go more in the deep water and answer the question that ultimately would be asked of us also, well... What about you? Right. Why do you think what you believe is true? Right. The tactics book, the first one in this kind of suite of material that I've offered is meant to do the preliminary work, so to speak. But Street Smarts is meant to do just what you asked, because then we go into all these different issues, and it's meant to show a flaw in others' view, but also to parry charges against our view. Okay. So when we are offering our view, um, then there's going to be challenges. Oh, that's arrogant. That's arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Okay, why is it arrogant? Well, you think that your view is right. Notice I asked the question, what's arrogant about it? Well, you think your view is right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> I do. But, but the contrary view that you hold, do you think that's right? Yeah. Okay, well, why am I arrogant when I think I'm right, but you're not arrogant when you think you're right? Mm-hmm. Just a simple exchange of questions that's meant to parry that. Okay, now you know, of course, Stan, that they've changed the subject. We were talking about Jesus, now we're talking about the Christian's character or his his vice of arrogance, whatever, and it's meant to parry that so we can get back on the issue. Sure. That's just one example. But my technique in the deeper end of the pool is exactly the same as in the shallow end of the pool, except for I know, and this is what I help to do in the bulk of the book, Street Smarts, we take each of these areas and I show people here is the problem with the opposite view, or here is the problem with the challenge that you want to parry, okay, like I just did with the arrogant claim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus is the only way. Well, actually, that's not my view. That's Jesus' view. Do you think Jesus was arrogant? No, he just loved everybody. Okay, well, do you think he was mistaken then? Oh, well, that's hard to say. Notice, bang, it's right back in their lap. But that's part of the dialogue. So what the Christian needs to be able to paddle around in the deeper end of the pool is he's got to know what is wrong with the challenges that have been offered of different sorts. Then he's got to know a kind of a a pattern or a step-by-step way of getting to the parry or or the refutation. And then he's got to know the questions that will initiate that process. Okay. And that's what the book Street Smarts is thick with. Every single issue, we explain what's wrong. Now you see this? Okay, great. Now here's how you can employ those insights in a conversation using questions. And one of the great things I think about this that makes it so easy is instead of making statements by which you get uh, gainsayed or people object or say you're wrong, whatever, now you got an argument, you're actually enlisting the other person as an ally in making your point. Because every time you ask this simple question and they affirm it, that's a piece that they put on the table that you get to use as a stepping stone to your conclusion. Now, they can take exception if you put it there, but they can't take exception if they put it there. And whether it's the issue of uh, 
Jesus being the only way or abortion or a whole host of other issues, this is possible to do. And this is what I guide the reader to do in the Street Smarts book. But you got to get the insight on the problems, which is what apologists do, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But there's a missing bridge, and the bridge is from the content, the insight on the problem, to the productive conversation, from the scholarship to the relationship. And this is what I've tried to do in my writings, both the Tactics book and the Street Smarts book, is to provide that bridge so that we have relaxed conversations that are, that are really productive to put a stone in someone's shoe and get them thinking. Really helpful, Greg. It's been a good good conversation. As we wrap up, what else do you want to make sure we talk about? What I want to leave Christians with, if I were to kind of sum some of this up, is I I want them to uh, rethink their understanding of evangelism and don't worry about swinging for the fences, okay? Don't worry about—you don't have to swing. You don't even have to get on base, as far as I'm concerned. You just have to get in the batter's box. Let's just take little pieces. Let's just worry about gardening. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when the Christian gets in the habit of doing that, they're going to see how much it radically simplifies the whole process. And as they learn more, the questions will become more, in a certain sense, sophisticated or more directed towards particular ends. That's what I try to do in Street Smarts with it. But even as a beginner, start with questions, and you will be amazed at how effective this can be, even when they're not making their own case. Where can listeners go to get more information beyond the books you've mentioned, which will be in the show notes? What other resources might be helpful? Well, I'm the founder and president of Stand to Reason, so that's the organization I work for. We're 30 years now rolling, and uh, our website, Stand to Reason, the acronym is STR, and our website is str.org, simple. But there are thousands and thousands of pages of all kinds of stuff that we've collected over 30 years, not just written stuff, but video stuff, and all kinds of easy to access, easy to understand. You know, we have training, and I have training in philosophy. Some of our other uh, workers have master's in philosophy or in apologetic. Um, virtually everybody has a master's degree, but we work really hard to throw the ball so people can catch it, no matter where they're at. This is part of the hallmark uh, of standard reason. We're translators. We take the smart guys like you, and then we take your ideas, and then we translate them so others can have, have access to them. And oh, the website is the best thing. I do a, a podcast. I do two hours a week in podcast, and I've been doing this for from radio to days back in since 1990. So 33 years of, uh, of doing uh, interactive talk radio. I do two hours of that, and then I do two half hours with Amy Hall responding to questions also. So there's, you know, lots of people can get on a, uh, like a daily basis with, you know, we will send it out and they can just listen to it, whatever they're doing, mowing the lawn, driving along, whatever. Right. Because that steady input, just like your program, is going to be the kind of thing that's going to build them up over time and give them encouragement. I've certainly benefited from a number of the things you've posted there. I know a lot of others have, so I appreciate you mentioning that. And thanks for your service to the kingdom for so many years, just being faithful to what God's called you to do. It's just a real blessing to the body of Christ and and, uh, taking the time to visit with me today on this. It's been a great conversation, Stan, and good for you for all the work you're doing. It's good to be uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, linked together once again a little bit to, to make a case for the true story of reality. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information 
and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.